This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. Welcome back to the WOMED. Today I'm speaking with a WOMED first, a pediatric cleft and craniofacial surgeon, Dr. Rania Habib. Woof. <laughs> Y'all don't even know. We get into everything today, and the hour just flew by. We dig into how Dr. Habib landed in pediatrics and her passion for recruiting more women to the OMFS, that's oral and maxillofacial surgery, to supporting Black lives, and how to vet out medical volunteer organizations. I mean it. We covered a lot. So buckle up, pack your lunch for work, and listen along. All right, guys, quick moment for that nursey energy. As a white woman with a podcast, this podcast isn't about me. I never wanted it to be, mostly because I really like putting other people in the spotlight. I want any woman that comes to this podcast and to this space to see and hear themselves and the stories that are being told. This isn't my podcast. It's all of yours. But as a white woman, I acknowledge the space I have taken, the racism I've never had directed at me, but also how I have contributed to it. Black lives matter. Black lives are in danger, and especially in the healthcare system. I know a lot of the people that follow and listen to this podcast are white women, and I'm betting more than a few of you haven't known what to say or how to help, or maybe you're even annoyed I'm taking the time to talk about this. The truth is, things are in desperate need of change. I've been to the protests with a backpack full of medical supplies, marching past officers in full riot gear, I've signed the petitions. I've read and learned more about Black history in the last month than I had all through school. To the white listeners, this is just the beginning. I know people are craving for things to get back to normal, but the truth is that normal sucked. In that normal, we were silent because oppression and racism didn't directly have an effect on us. We turned off the news and turned off our empathy. Pick up a book. Listen to more podcasts. This is my nursey energy moment. And I'm encouraging all of you to step out of your fear and your comfort zone. DM me how you're showing up. Well, I'm so excited. So for those that don't know, I have Dr. Rania Habib on with me today. And she is a board certified OMFS, which is oral and maxillofacial surgery. Yes, Did I say you it got right? it. Okay. Yes. Oral and maxillofacial <laughs> surgery. Maxillofacial. Okay. I was like, I'm, I'm putting an extra syllable in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone does. Don't feel bad. Okay, good. Because the way I look at it, it's typed and I'm like, do I have four L's in there? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so do you specialize in pediatric cleft? I do. Okay. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. So after I was so done cool. with training, I did a full scope pediatric cleft and craniofacial fellowship down at University of Florida, Jacksonville. And that's really my passion is treating kids with cleft and craniofacial disorders and just that multidisciplinary care that takes their care all the way from when they're an infant, all the way up through adulthood. That's amazing. The cleft babies always provided a a big challenge, obviously, Mm -hmm. for Mm -hmm. feeding and growth, but just seeing the surgeries and like what you guys are capable of doing and reconstructing with some pretty, pretty large defects is just mm-hmm. phenomenal because it's like it, these kids are otherwise 
normally completely fine. It's just that like midline defect. Right. Absolutely. And oftentimes, and that's what we tell the parents is your child should be able to, as long as you know, they're not syndromic, should be able to grow and learn and jump and laugh and be just as normal as any other child. They're just going to have a scar. And so we, we really emphasize that. And that's why I love the multidisciplinary approach that we take using the cleft team, because we do try to really focus on the whole child. So we want to make sure that the psychological and part is intact because they do unfortunately tease a lot. I mean, kids can recognize differences as young as ages three and four. So Mm -hmm. we want them to be prepared and then, you know, plan their surgeries so that we can minimize their time out of school and minimize the chance that they're going to get bullied. So I really enjoy that multidisciplinary approach. How long do those repairs usually take? Like at what age do you usually start a repair? So the first cleft lip repair is around age three to six months. And so they have to meet certain criteria to make sure that it's safe for them to undergo anesthesia. And we do it that young because we've shown that it's going to help with feeding. And so feeding is really important in those early um, months of life, as we know. Mm -hmm. So we want the lip to have enough material there. So we want to have good muscle and we want to have good mucosa and good upper lip tissue. And so we don't usually do it younger than three months because there's just, the results aren't as great when there's not as robust tissue. Plus we want the child to undergo anesthesia safely. Mm -hmm. So about three to six months is the lip repair. Okay. And then we don't generally repair the palate until about age 10 to 12 months. And sometimes that can be a little delayed as well, depending on how the child is doing. And then the palate repair is done for speech. So we want to make sure that they can now talk. And we found again, when we were doing that earlier, we were just inducing more scarring. So by waiting a little bit, we're allowing the upper jaw to grow and we're preventing some of the scarring, although unfortunately we still do restrict growth sometimes in the upper jaw. Oh, wild. See, this is the stuff I never got to see, you know? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Like they, working in the NICU, it was, okay, well, we get them to a point where either we can feed, like they can, you know, take from like a special bottle or it's Mm -hmm. it's tube feeds teaching the parents but like we never get to see their subsequent surgeries right yeah what was your training like you have dds after Mm -hmm. your name too so Mm -hmm. did you become a dentist and then decide to do this or yeah like (laughs) walk me through it (laughs) i know everyone's so confused so in the u.s oral and maxillofacial surgery is still a dental subspecialty So that means you have to go to dental school first and you do four full years of dental training. So you do all of the training and subspecialties like pediatric dentistry, endodontics, periodontics, prosthodontics, restorative dentistry, you know, TMJ pain, the whole specialty. And you, you learn how to do fillings and all of that. And then just like medical school, you can plan to subspecialize. And so you would apply, start your application process in the end of your third year, and then you apply fourth year, just like you do in med school for a subspecialty. And then if you match, the OMFS program is either a six-year joint MD program or a four-year certificate program. So surgical training between the two options, the four and the six-year, is exactly the same. The difference is that the six-year, you do a fast-track med school within your six years of training that gets you your MD. So Within that, we have to do a full year of general surgery rotation. We have to do all of the third year requirements for med school. We have to take all the board exams. So the main difficulty in getting the joint six-year program is 
now for the rest of my career, I have to maintain both my dental and my medical licenses, which means CE for both. And oftentimes you can't claim the same CE for both oh licenses. <laughs> and then anytime you move, you have to have both licenses. So we are, um, we also train in anesthesia and that's, we do five full months in residency. And that's how we were able to sedate patients and administer anesthesia safely within our offices. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of the robust training that we have. And in some places in the world, you can enter OMFS from either medical or dental. But unfortunately in the US, we don't have the model yet from that you can enter from medical. And it is a recognized surgical subspecialty by the American College of Surgeons. So you'll see a lot of um, surgeons that have the FACS designation after their name. I'll be applying this year. You have to have a certain amount of cases in order to actually apply and you have to be out of fellowship for a full year before you can record those cases. So I'll be applying this year. So I'm super excited. Wow. So then that means that you don't have to keep up the dental portion or? No, I still do. Still do. Okay. (laughs) Oh my gosh. That's so crazy. Mm -hmm. So it's long. So it was four years of undergrad, four years Mm -hmm. of dental school, six years of joint oral maxillofacial surgery and um, medical school training. And then I did two years in private practice because I just kind of was like, oh, I'm going to do private practice and enjoy my life. And then I realized that my passion really late was with pediatrics. And that was the field that I was most interested in residency. So then I went back and did a full year um, fellowship in cleft and craniofacial surgery. So my total training after high school was 15 years. Oh my God. My jaw is just like. Isn't that crazy? I'm thinking, I'm thinking about that. I'm thinking about student loans. I'm thinking Mm -hmm. about this. crazy hierarchy that you have to well pyramid of things that you have to do it's insane yeah it's a lot (laughs) what kind of led you to decide that pediatrics was like your your calling so all through high school I babysat a lot I was always just loved children and I always was just about connecting people Mm -hmm. so in residency, when you know you get to explore head and neck cancer and TMJ surgery and orthopedic surgery and all these different like subspecialties that we have, cosmetics, I loved working with children. What I found is I could always calm them down. I was always really good with the parents and able to come down and understand their level of anxiety and what they were going through and just sort of have that empathy and sympathy for their experience. But more than anything, I, I seem to always be able to put the kids at ease. And, you know, on my mm-hmm. pediatric rotation in med school, they were like, wow, you have this amazing knack to just make these children chill out. I really love the fact that if you can explain things to them, you can often, you know, help them understand how you're trying to help them. Mm-hmm. And I love that with pedi- specifically with pediatric cleft and craniofacial surgery, it's not like a one surgery and they're done and they're out the door and you never have to see them again, which obviously some surgeons really enjoy because mm-hmm. they like the healing factor. And then the fact that, you know, the patient's healed and then it's successful, they don't have to come back. But what I enjoyed about pediatrics is more often than not, we do have to follow those kids long-term for surgery. And I love that rapport that we built with both the family and the child. And they begin to see you as like an ally and someone who's actually helping them. And I love that relationship. And then, like I talked about earlier, that multidisciplinary approach to care, where you're really looking at the child holistically and saying, how can we be the most impactful in this child's life while minimizing the surgeries and different, you know, procedures that we're doing on the patient. So 
that's why I loved it. And I think, I mean, kids are just awesome. So <laughs> they really are. They're so resilient. I mean, mm -hmm. you don't have to convince me. I'm a Pete's person all the way. Right. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> we have that in common. Yes. So where do, do you work then private practice or are you in the hospital or how does, how does that work? I am in academics now. So I did private practice, but then when I finished fellowship, I decided that I wanted to stay within academic medicine. I think okay. the opportunities for providing care at like a children's hospital is increased. Mm -hmm. So I, right when I finished fellowship, I took my first full-time attending physician at LSU and it was a great experience. I worked at the Children's Hospital in Baton Rouge, and my cleft team was just amazing. But in the end, it just became a lifestyle issue for me. I really wasn't suited for life in the South. I was extremely lonely. I didn't have any friends there. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't have any family. And it's just a much different atmosphere than when I grew up. I just always felt like an outsider, if that makes sense. So yeah. I ended up just completing the one-year contract that I had signed. And then I was able to get another attending position at University of Pennsylvania. So that's where I am now. Oh, so cool. I moved right in the middle of <laughs> COVID-19. Oh, this isn't brand new. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Like literally brand new. So it's been a really difficult transition because, you know, my licensing was delayed because of COVID-19. Nobody was mm -hmm. at the state agencies, medical or dental board. So I'm still working through all of the licensing and credentialing and all of that. So right now I'm just doing emergency procedures. So really just doing like trauma and infections and then helping cover the dental school clinic, which again is like basic oral surgery, like extractions and dental alveolar procedures. And then hopefully as my credentials come through, then I'll be able to actually do my full scope pediatric practice. Wow. I can't imagine doing all of that during COVID. <laughs> Yeah, it was, it's been terrible. <laughs> oh my gosh. But I feel you though. I couldn't, Nashville was far enough South for me to go. Mm -hmm. I would not be suited well for a Floridian climate or, <laughs> no. Or, a, oh, no. or a Texas climate or anything like that. I still like my snow. Like I like to get home, yeah. and, you know, mm -hmm. get some snow, but Nashville's pretty great. Right. Great. It's a good yeah. fit. I've, it's been on my list forever. I just ba barely like drove through it as I was moving from yeah. Louisiana and I was like, I didn't spend enough time here. So I really want to go down for like a long weekend and listen to some live music and get some good food. <laughs> so well, maybe when I come down there, I'm going to hit you up. <laughs> do it. Please do it. I love taking people around. I love showing them Nashville. And that then you'll probably great. want to come and work at like Vanderbilt or something yeah. like that. <laughs> Can you find me a job? <laughs> I'll work on it. There's a lot of Midwesterners right. here in Nashville. Yeah. Okay. Because you're from the Midwest too, right? You're Minnesota originally? Yep. So I was born in Denton, Texas, which is why my family and I are still diehard Cowboys fans. And obviously <laughs> the Philadelphians are not going to enjoy that very much. And no. then moved to Minnesota basically from first grade on. So I grew up in Minnesota in a small town called Mankato. It's like an hour and a half south of Minneapolis. I know Mankato. You do. Great. Yeah. Yeah. There is a cheerleading team from Mankato and they were in a competition with us. <laughs> no way. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. And then um, I went to undergrad and dental school at University of Minnesota. So I'm a golden nice. gopher <laughs> for eight years. <laughs> That's awesome. Now I went to school on the cross. So we would Nice. You know, take trips up to Minneapolis and, you know, it was mm -hmm. like a little two hour stint from there. So, no, I love Minnesota. There's so many beautiful places up there. 
Oh, it is. I love it. And especially the outdoor stuff. I was surprised because you think a state that has that much snow would just be miserable. And it is in the winter. I'm not going to say it's not. <laughs> yeah, the eight but months of winter. Yeah, but there at is. least they Zamboni the lakes and then mm-hmm. they will like comb the trails so you can do cross-country skiing. So I always mm-hmm. tell people, even though it's very cold, there's still a lot of fun things that Minneapolis really does in the winter to make people forget. You know, they'll do... Um, like pop-up bars and they'll do like the igloo, like the indoor igloo where you can run around and they've got ice sculptures. So there's, they they still make the most of it when they can. Yeah. Yeah. People forget there's a lot that you can do. (laughs) I mean, you've got snowmobiling, you have ice fishing, you have ice skating. You can just, I mean, cross-country ski, like you said. I haven't Mm -hmm. done that in a long time. Me too. (laughs) It's been since I was in, in high school, I think was the last time. Yeah. Yeah, I can't cross I can't um downhill ski either. I don't know how I tried. No one ever taught me to stop. So I snow plow and then, you know, it just I got injured. I kept throwing myself at the end because I was going, Oh my god, here's the fence. <laughs> and so <laughs> I don't know that I'd be willing to try again now that I'm older. Yeah, I still feel like I could be a really great snowboarder. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just one of those things I just feel about myself, like a drummer. I feel like if if mm-hmm. I had a drum kit, I could be an amazing drummer. You never know until you try it. Exactly. <laughs> but my mom, I remember trying to like get her to let me learn in high school. And she was like, no, I'm not paying for another knee surgery. So that was no. <laughs> that was the end of my snowboarding career. Yeah, that's I think being a facial trauma specialist, that is why I haven't really gotten into skiing and snowboarding. I was like, maybe if I had started as a child and really learned how to balance and stop Mm -hmm. and turn appropriately. But as you get older, it's much harder to learn these things. And I'm just not willing to take the brunt and edge of the, or the brunt end of all of the injuries, like knee injuries, as you said, or God forbid, I run into a tree. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. One of my, um, one of my friends ran into a tree once and it was, it was ghastly. It was, Oh, it's terrible. Yeah. What What are some of the worst surgeries that you've had or like worst like accidents that you've had to that stick out in your brain that you've had to take care of? One of them was really sad. It was um, a gentleman. It was my actually my intern year and he was riding a motorcycle without a helmet Ooh. and flew off the handlebars and it literally looked like a bear had clawed him oh across his face all the way through his scalp. And it was all the way down to bone. And as an, you know, and as an intern, you're like, oh my God. And I had to drain this massive hematoma. So that was probably one of the worst soft tissue injuries I, have, I had seen. I think I sutured for probably four hours straight just to get the amount of lacerations closed that I had to. Mm-hmm. And then um, pan facial fractures. I mean, I've seen <laughs> so many, but I think some of the worst injuries I've seen are the self-inflicted gunshot wounds to the face. because they often, unfortunately, well, fortunately for their lives, they miss the brain. And so they're still alive, Mm -hmm. but unfortunately for the facial structure, it's so hard to recreate those defects when you've blown Mm -hmm. off, you know, your nose or your lips or your teeth or bone. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to bring that back and reconstruct a multi-level or multi, um, tissue layer defect like that. Mm-hmm. So I think those are the hardest. It's we and that's why they've been developing the facial facial transplant for patients who have really bad injuries, but mm-hmm. definitely the hardest to deal with. I love trauma from the aspect of just 
it's so challenging and how do I give this person their identity back? But it can Mm -hmm. be crushing because you can do the most perfect surgery and it still won't ever look 100% normal despite doing facial revisions and, you know, because it's just being able to replace the tissue of the face is very difficult. Yeah. Oh, I can't imagine. Is there a high burnout rate with that too? Yeah, there's a high burnout rate from from surgeons who want to do trauma. I think it's multifactorial. So one is that it's it's like if a patient has trauma, there's a window of when you have to do that trauma. And it may not be directly that day, but you have to do it within two weeks. And if you don't work at the hospital full time, it's trying to figure out how can I take time off of my private practice to go? Or if it's a terrible accident or a you know life-threatening infection that you have to go in right there, obviously it's very life-disruptive. You just have to leave everything and go to the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, and then second, as we know, is reimbursement for trauma isn't that great and nobody really knows why. But you do this really extensive, amazing reconstructive surgery that takes six to eight hours and you don't get paid anything for it compared to doing a short surgery in your office that's, you know, very minimal risk mm. and it reimburses well. So I think it's, that's the problem with people who do it. It's just, it, get, it becomes exhausting to put in that much time and effort for very little return. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately in medicine, as much as we want to be altruistic and say that we're doing it for the greater good, I think most of the time we are, but at the same time, I think it takes a toll on people to be doing this amazing extensive surgery and then you don't see the proper reimbursement for it. So unfortunately, I think that's why a lot of surgeons end up getting a little bit burnt out from, from doing complex trauma surgery. I can see that. I think that's one of the bigger problems and stuff in healthcare with retaining employees is that mm-hmm. we're just not compensated fairly, right. like for the emotional and physical toll that you know, these surgeries or, you know, the daily shifts and stuff take on you. It's just, Mm -hmm. it starts to pile up. (laughs) It does. I mean, you're carrying the burden of making sure that patient heals and, Mm -hmm. and to not feel like you're getting compensated appropriately. I agree. I think that's a big reason why there's burnout in all different fields of medicine, sadly. Mm -hmm. Okay. Kids at heart, quick time out. And we'll be right back to Dr. Habib. There's a lot going on in the world right now. And the children in our lives are soaking up everything and learning in new ways at home. KiwiCo is this super rad company I found when I was looking for an interactive gift for my friend's daughter for her birthday. I always loved fun projects where I was able to create something. And I think that's so important for young minds. KiwiCo has something for everyone from 0 years old to 104 years old. I had the koala crate delivered to my friend and I got the sweetest video of her daughter writing letters, putting them in the mailbag, and handing them to her neighbors. There are so many unique projects that get delivered to your door that make learning even more fun and keep young minds focused on making something. It's such a confidence builder. You won't believe what they can build with KiwiCo. With crates like science, arts, and engineering, there's something for everyone. There's no commitment and you can pause or cancel the crates at any time. KiwiCo is redefining play with hands-on projects that build confidence, creativity, and critical thinking skills. There's something for every kid or kid at heart at KiwiCo. Get 30% off your first month on select crates at kiwico.com. 
dot com slash WOMED. That's K-I-W-I-C-O dot com slash WOMED. One thing that like I've really enjoyed about your Instagram page is how much you have spoken out for for COVID and for fighting for Black lives. And I'm just curious if you have seen any sort of backlash from that, from like the hospital that you work with or um, just from people that come to your account. So I will say from the COVID-19, it was pretty much status quo, losing the same amount of followers that you do just kind of every week, people check out your account and realize that maybe it's not their forte and so then Mm -hmm. they leave. Um, And a lot of people appreciated the material that I've shared. I really have been like, I I read the articles before I share them. I don't share anything unless I, it's science based. I never share anything that's like fresh off the press because I want to do the proper research and make sure that it's actually accurate. And I always tried to share articles that are research-based and kind of leave the opinion out of it. I think that's Mm -hmm. really important Mm -hmm. for Black Lives Matter that is something that's extremely near and dear to my heart. So my parents are Egyptian. They immigrated here by choice, you know, in the early eighties and so, or late seventies. And so for me to see another racial minority group who, if you look at the ancestry was brought here unwillingly and then forced into slavery and then have endured these um, degree of racism and injustice basically their entire existence in this community and then to not be recognized by some groups as American, that really speaks so much to me as being an ally and bringing a fellow minority, you know, I'm Muslim, I'm Egyptian American, I'm a female. And so, and even being that, I still cannot feel and understand the discrimination that our Black brothers and sisters in our community undergo. So for me, it's something that I will 100% speak up about. And again, I've been trying to, it's a very delicate subject. So as much as I would like to share my own thoughts and opinions, and I have been, I've also been very careful about how it's going to be perceived because I don't want anyone to think that I'm trying to steal the spotlight or I'm trying to make myself understand the you know, what our African-American brothers and sisters are going through Mm -hmm. because none of us will, we're not in their shoes. No. No. So for me, it's been trying to amplify the voices of my friends and family that I see out there and like, well, and people that have brought up very good points about how do we change? How do we be active? And have I seen some backlash? No one's really openly confronted me about it. Have I seen my followers decrease because of it? Absolutely. Do I care? Mm-hmm. Absolutely not. <laughs> right. <laughs> I call it eliminating the noise. If they don't want to hear my opinion and they're refusing to listen to the racial injustice that's going on in society right now, then they're, they're not interested in being part of the solution. And to be honest, those are not people that I want to surround myself with. So I just say, bye. It was nice like interacting with you, but it's, there's no hard feelings. You move on with your life, but I'm going to continue to stand up for people who are marginalized. Do you feel like you've had like some tougher conversations as of late too? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Because I'm checking my own privilege, like regardless Mm -hmm. of my minority status, when I go out into the street, besides my, you know, curly hair, which can get wild, I am a lighter skinned brown person. 
though I still don't have the same discrimination against me that, you know, our black brothers and sisters have. So I've really looked inward as to my own biases because we all have them, right? We were all raised different ways in different communities. And so inevitably you're going to have your own biases and microaggressions. So Mm -hmm. it's really been even looking at my vocabulary and how do I change the narrative, what I'm actually saying and how I classify people and what are my biases. So I've been really taking that inward and talking to friends and family that I've kind of interacted with them and been like, wow, you understand that that's a racist comment. And like, we've had those difficult conversations and it's been calling out colleagues and friends that really aren't getting the big picture. And those Mm -hmm. are tough conversations to have. So it's trying to figure out the best way to, to, to have those conversations, which I always feel like is either on the phone or in person text message letters, writing a direct message, those things just don't work because, you know, media can be misconstrued. Mm -hmm. And surprisingly, I feel like we've really had some open discussions about some really tough topics. That's really great. I feel similar in that as a white woman, I've had some really deep introspection. Mm -hmm. And I've looked at a lot of like what my friends or other, you know, influential followers have posted. And it just was like, it was so superficial or they just didn't post anything, Mm -hmm. you know? And like, I almost think it's, it's worse that like, if you don't try and like say something or to stand up for someone, even if, even if you get it wrong, like at least take that information on how you got it wrong to continue mm-hmm. to to learn and how to better have these conversations. Oh, absolutely. But- and something that Oprah, I actually posted today something that Oprah said that really stood out. And she said, the next time you see an injustice and you pretend you didn't see it, then you are mm-hmm. part of the problem. And I've spoken to a lot of my friends who are African-American or African and gotten their perspective. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what they said. They said, it is just as bad, in my opinion, for you to sit there and be silent and pretend that nothing's happened or to be muted when everyone sort of did that muting campaign Mm -hmm. because you're not being part of the solution. They said that they'd much rather have you be vocal and take a stand and set your, you know, and take all of the, you know, the feedback that comes along with that, whether it's good or bad. And to sit and be silent, or like you said, or to the influencers that have sat around as if nothing has happened and continue to, you know, post about their fashion and all that stuff as if the world isn't Mm -hmm. really going through some tough conversations. So it is a difficult balance because I have built my IG on information about surgery and trying to encourage minorities and women to enter surgery as a field. And so I have to find that balance. And that has been difficult because I've had a ton of students and residents say like, Hey, like we need some knowledge drops. We're about to enter, you know, private practice, or we're going into the real world or, Hey, we're going to start residency or, Hey, we're dental students interested in OMFS. Like, can we get some help? And it's been hard to make those transitions. So it's something that I'm constantly working on is how do I balance my voice for the political and um, current important social issues that are going on balanced with my desire to continue to provide medical education. So it's it's a tough balance, Danielle, for sure. <laughs> I can't say, I mean, like, 
I feel like I, I can empathize. I mean, I'm obviously not dropping a ton of like NICU knowledge or anything on my page mm-hmm. anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, I've, I've transitioned outside of that, but I've never really known exactly what I feel, I've always just kind of felt like my social media space was a space for everything, you mm-hmm. know? So, but at the same token, I do support myself partially from you know from my accounts and stuff or Mm -hmm. like different things that like I post about Mm -hmm. but it just feels wrong like like I just can't bring myself to 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 post about something like a product when there's just so much else going on right now and I I know I know I need to find like a balance in how to maybe it's just like finding like a like an actual voice for what I want to talk about on social media mm-hmm. because, you know, I mean, I've been called everything from a dumb liberal bitch to uh, just, oh my God, no, there's, there's, there's a That's lot. That's insane. <laughs> yeah. But like since, you know, COVID and then especially since, you know, posting about Black Lives Matter, I've lost about 7,000 followers. Wow. Yeah. And it's, it it makes me sad for them mm-hmm. and that it's it just makes me sad that there's so many people in America who either are just deciding just to shut down or ignore it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They just don't care. Right. And I'm someone that just like, I know I'm, I know I'm going to get a lot of this wrong, but I really mm-hmm. care about trying to get it right. Absolutely. And I think that that speaks louder than words and you just have to now find how to incorporate your voice into the activism that you want to show. Mm-hmm. And even if it's in small tidbits, I think it can be very impactful and you just have to find that balance between fulfilling, you know, the desire to make money because it, it if that's part of how you raise income, then you still have to consider that. But mm-hmm. I think there's a good balance between the two. And it may be, you know, you dedicate, you switch off posts. Maybe every other post is something you're socially interested in and then you can maintain the other stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, In terms of losing followers, that makes me extremely sad because obviously you've spent a long time building your platform and building your podcast and being a, a space where you are highlighting, you know, other women and what they've accomplished. And so I wouldn't let that gets you down. I think you're doing amazing work and just have faith that the people who are following you are following you for the right reasons and the rest of them, you just kind of wave goodbye. <laughs> Move on. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that a lot. And that kind of, I think that's a great segue into empowered women, empower women. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I love that. And I appreciate you. I really appreciate you saying that and taking some space just to empower me a little bit because I'm, I'm not, uh, I get so nervous. I'm I'm not, I'm actually not one for the spotlight much, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. I, I mean, like with this podcast, I really just love having other strong women on here to, to brag about them and give them the space to, to talk about all the awesome things that they're doing. And You've completed 15 years of school <laughs> on top of high school. <laughs> and, and you're you're doing something so important as, you know, I mean, obviously specializing in, in pediatric clefts. I mean, it sounds cheesy to say, but like smiles are so important in how your 
face looks and how you perceive your face to look gives you mm-hmm. like a certain level of confidence to to go out into the world. And Absolutely. I just think it's I think it's a beautiful gift to to do what you do. Thank you. I love it. So I honestly, and that's something I tell people is as long as you found your passion and when you walk into work, you've got that little, you know, little jump in your step and mm-hmm. and you're smiling all the time, then you know, you've picked the right profession. So despite how long it took every day that I show up into the children's hospital or a cleft team or teaching my dental students or my residents or medical students or interacting with the nurses on our team or the um, speech and language pathologists. I'm like, this is where I belong. I love this. So I've been fortunate enough to find that, but you know, my pathway wasn't easy. I, it, I did take that time off because I was burnt out in private practice. And that really helped me reestablish my love of cleft and craniofacial. And it's not cheesy. That's why we do it. Really the power of giving somebody their facial structure and their smile back is so rewarding. So that is part of why we do it. (laughs) (laughs) Important pause for your mental health. Y'all know the WOMED loves therapy. It's so important to our health and happiness as humans. BetterHelp makes taking charge of your mental health so easy and convenient, which things like convenience and easy access are excuses we tell ourselves as barriers to seeking help. BetterHelp is not a crisis hotline. It's not self-help. It is professional counseling from the comfort, safety, and privacy of your own home, your own couch even. In many cases, it is more affordable than traditional counseling and financial aid is available. You have access to licensed professional counselors who specialize in depression, stress, anxiety, LGBTQ matters, relationships, family conflicts, and traumas. You can reach out to your counselor at any time and get thoughtful, timely responses, and easily schedule video or phone sessions with your counselor. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you will get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com womed. Join the over 800,000 people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash WOMED. I don't think I've thought more about how much you're seeing someone's face impacts you than I have during COVID. And like when you're having to wear a mask all the time and you, you can't express with your full face, you know, Mm -hmm. I feel like it's making people kind of, kind of withdrawn and they're just kind of forgetting how to interact with each other. So Mm -hmm. The fact that, you know, once we have a vaccine and we can all live mask free again, for the most part, just knowing that, you know, there's someone like you that's, that's really helping to allow people to express themselves and feel confident is just so cool. Thank you. I agree. I can't wait for mask season to be done. (laughs) (laughs) It's been tough. It has been tough. I was at work the other day. And my boss, she like put on some lip gloss and she's like, I don't know why I just put on lip gloss. Like I'm going to put on my mask. <laughs> like, right. What am I doing? And it's like, why do we even put blush on anymore? It's going to get all over your mask. So it does make the morning routine much simpler, I will say. <laughs> oh yeah. I only, I only put on like concealer and mascara and I'm out the door because it yeah, doesn't, I'm just it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like eyeliner. Bye-bye. I'm yeah. Done. 
Yeah, doesn't matter. It's fine. My skin below is breathing. It's great. Yep. <laughs> Have you ever thought about doing or going on those, what are they called, like smile cruises or the those cruise Medical ships? missions? Yeah, like those cruise ships that dock and, and just like... What what are those even like? So they have tons of different mission trips that are that are for cleft and craniofacial. Mm-hmm. And so I have I started going in fellowship. I did the one that was through my fellowship. My fellowship director has a smile foundation that he's had now in Vietnam for 25 years. So he takes the fellow every year and it is so rewarding. And then I've been part of two other mission trips. One is the Global Smile Foundation, which is based out of um, Boston and they're an ENT group that does um, offer spots for plastic surgeons and OMFS. Mm -hmm. And then the last one I went with was the Smile Foundation and it's an OMFS based group. And so the reason I am very selective with the mission trips that I join Mm-hmm. is I refuse to go with a group that goes to only do like lips or only palettes and then they never go back to that site again. So yeah. for me, yes, you're doing that child a service for that one surgery, mm-hmm. but the point of cleft care is that you're providing care for the whole life of that child. So the organizations that I've chose to volunteer with are that they go to the same sites every single year. They bring mm-hmm. a full cleft team. So they're not jumping through hoops. They're not cutting corners. They're providing the same level of care as the U.S. Something that I just cannot get on board with are these people who aren't cleft and craniofacial trained Mm -hmm. and then go abroad to learn how to do cleft and craniofacial surgery on people when they don't do it in the U.S. And I find that appalling. Like you should not be able to do surgery that you're not trained to do. No. And so I find that extremely frustrating. And so oh I will God. not, <laughs> I will not volunteer with groups that do that. And I will not volunteer with groups that sort of just go all over the world as if they're like the saviors and they, mm-hmm. some, you know, and unfortunately what you'll see is a lot of them only fix the cleft lip because that's the most visible and it shows that like we are amazing and we're doing such good yeah. work. Mm-hmm. And then they never go back and repair the palate and they never go back and repair the speech deficits or the alveolar cleft. And I just can't get behind that. It's not how I practice. And I don't think that is offering long-term care. Mm -hmm. So I am very selective with the groups that I volunteer with, but the ones that I do, I absolutely love it because you are making such a difference and it's all volunteer based and you'll just, it's extremely rewarding. So I always tell people, do your research, do your homework, but Mm -hmm. if you are able to give back volunteering and it may not have it doesn't even have to be overseas there are you know rural areas in the U.S. that even need the care yes yeah but there are so many different opportunities to volunteer but just stick to your principles I think it's really important there's there's a lot to unpack in what you just said I can't (laughs) like my blood is boiling right now thinking of someone being like oh I'm not trained in the U.S. but I'm gonna go train on these other people in these uh, like lower income countries just because they're they're available that's just that's like you're 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 being completely racist in thinking that they are less than and it's okay right. for you to just go over there but like you're so great because you're fixing this anyways even though you don't actually fully know what you're doing <laughs> And I think it, I don't, I mean, I, I don't think you're going to see like an orthopedic surgeon go and fix a cleft lip, but what you right. are, what I am seeing is 
you know, oral maxillofacial surgeons or ENTs or plastic surgeons that did it in residencies. So they've had mm-hmm. exposure to it, but they don't do it on the daily basis. And it's not yeah. part of their US practice mm-hmm. that then go and do it overseas. And like I said, it's just, it makes me uncomfortable because you do cleft lip and palate um, fellowship for a reason. There's a lot of intricacies. And even as someone who's trained, I learn something new every time I perform a surgery or when I'm fortunate enough to scrub with another senior surgeon, they can show me like little tips and tricks that I was like, oh, wow, I've never seen that. That's excellent. Like to improve your quality of your surgery and your outcomes. Mm -hmm. And so I can't imagine going overseas and doing that type of surgery when you're relying on, you know, the few cases that you did in residencies. So I just caution yeah. people to be aware of that and to remember that these are not, you, you vowed to do no harm and to give them the best care possible. And so if you're not fully trained to do it, then I just always recommend that's not how you learn. Like you need to go do fellowship if you want to do it. Yeah. There's another aspect of that too of like you know a lot of people want to go on these mission trips and healthcare trips but it I've been struggling with my own part that I've played as a nurse who's gone you know overseas and like Mm -hmm. what part like I've played in acting like a white savior Mm -hmm. and any organization that I've gone with has you know at least had something in place where you know, it's all community-based. You're leaving them with the tools. You know, if yes. you're going there to provide something, you're leaving there. You're leaving them with the tools to continue to grow their community. You're not just, you know, you're like you're teaching them something. Right. And I think that's extremely important. Yes. Because it's not, you know, us coming over there and, you know, saving these people. Like, mm-hmm. it's bringing over maybe other resources that wouldn't, that they, that wouldn't necessarily be readily available. And mm-hmm. one thing, so I interviewed uh, Michelle Manavis, uh last season on the podcast and her fellowship at Yale, she went over to Tanzania because they have like a group partnership over there mm-hmm. where, you know, they go over, they train and like helped build like a cath lab or something. Wow. So I'm curious if there's anything like that, like any of the local doctors or anything that you have met on your mission trips, if it's something where it's like a integrative teaching thing. Yeah. And Global Smiles Foundation is one of those groups that does that. So they hold workshops for the local surgeons that mm-hmm. are like OMFS, ENT or plastics that are, are doing fellowships, but maybe don't have enough mentorship or the amount of cases to do supervised. Mm-hmm. So they, they offer that service. And I think that's um, amazing. And that's the director, awesome. Dr. Hamden, who does that. And he actually teaches them. So every year that he goes back, he brings those fellows um, on the trip and they'll, they'll scrub just with him. Mm-hmm. And he's really doing those hands-on, like now that you have the skills, let's teach you all these little points. And that's what, and again, that's why I just really enjoy that group. And there are, a, beyond that, there's a ton of groups like that, that are really, trying to set up the community. And another one that comes to mind is the Palestinian Children's Relief Fund. That's not just cleft lip and palate. They do tons of orthopedic work and psychological work. But beyond just providing the volunteer services, they bring a local doctor with them on each of those mission trips. And they try to you know, help them um, improve their skill set. 
and then teach them how to do the follow-up and teach them how to do some of the minor stuff. And so Mm -hmm. oftentimes it's more just access to the, like they're great surgeons. They just didn't have the access to the resources that they need. And Mm -hmm. so they provide that. And so, um, I've, I support them regularly. I just haven't been able to go on a mission trip with them, but a lot of my friends volunteer with that group and have just said wonderful things about it. And they have a cancer center now. So um, it's pretty, it's a pretty impressive group. Yeah. That's cool. That's really cool. And that's, like you said, that's, what's so important. Like you have to do your research before you go on these trips and you can't be, you can't be going on these trips just to take a photo for Instagram and get a bunch of likes. Like if, if that's Mm -hmm. the reason that you're wanting to go, you know, overseas, please turn back around like they don't need you they don't need your lollipops they don't need your suckers they like they don't need you just to sit there and hold and rock babies like that's Mm -hmm. that's not what I was right and I was very um so I documented all my trips but without any of the children in the photos and that was really important to me and I got I got you know terrible feedback like how come we're not seeing your work we want to see your before and afters and to you me, have to that's protect like the identity. Like these are your absolutely. patients. It's HIPAA. And that's right. And it's also to me, it just feels like exploitation. Like mm-hmm. I'm not trying to, and I, you know, I, I am proud of my work and I try to always improve and give, do the best surgery that I can, but I'm not there to put these children on display. I'm there to right. heal them. I'm there to operate on them so that they can improve their quality of life. And it's not for the gram. You know, I want people to be aware of the organization because obviously Mm -hmm. we need to monetarily support them so they can continue to do the work. But to me, that's a fine balance. So if you, Mm -hmm. you can see back on some of them, you know, we got permission, like our Vietnam trip, all the parents sign consent and they actually, we show them the photos before we post them. So that was the one trip that I did show some of the work that we did Mm -hmm. with permission from the parents and, and the organization but I've been very cognizant of that. And it's, and that's why you don't see a lot of cases on my platform is HIPAA for one, but second, the moment you put your work out there, anyone can steal it and claim right. it as their own. And mm-hmm. I have a huge problem with that. I don't want to see my stuff plastered on someone else's website claiming mm-hmm. that that's their work. And yeah. so for me, it becomes very personal. Like that's my patient. I'm there to protect them. Mm-hmm. I'm not there to exploit them. So you'll never see me on mission trips unless I've had written explicit um, permission from the families and from the children. You'll rarely see me post actual photos of my patients. I'll talk about the experience, but I'm just, I like to keep that stuff private. Oh, I knew there was a reason <laughs> I liked you. <laughs> we never actually got to the empowered women part. No, we didn't. <laughs> Let's circle back to empowered women. How, how do you empower other women? So part of it is that women only comprise 8% of oral and maxillofacial surgeons. So to me, oh that number is dismal, especially because our dental schools right now are 50-50 and most mm-hmm. med schools are 50-50. So you'd think that number would be rising. So yeah. for me, it's really been engaging with other women, giving them uh, an avenue for to raise their voice on my platform. So I try to repost their stuff often. Mm-hmm. It's engaging with other women empowering groups like She MD, WOMED, which you obviously started, Women of OMFS, Women Surgeons, AMWA, which is the American Medical Women's Association, and trying to be really active with those groups. 
And then I've been mentoring a lot of medical and dental students, and I don't limit it to just female, but I think Mm -hmm. that I've drawn a lot of interest from females for that reason. So I try to be a positive role model for them to show them like, you can have a life and be a surgeon. You can work out, you can make food, you can meal prep, you can go out with your friends, (laughs) you can (laughs) travel, you can have, you know, a family and those things while being a surgeon. So I've, I've tried to do that. And then I think the, um, I just try to be very aware of if I'm invited to speak at something, can I also get an invitation for a fellow female to be there as well? And I try to volunteer at activities that I know there's not going to be any other females there because I want to have my voice heard and I want Mm -hmm. them to show that like, because there's, I think sometimes there's this misperception, well, women surgeons aren't as good as men. And I'm like, "Uh uh-uh, yes, we are. Yeah. But it, it becomes important that empowering part is bringing your friend in and saying, Hey, well, thank you for inviting me to this panel. I also think this person would contribute. Well, do you want them? Could, do you mind me asking them too? And I've been trying to be, um, I volunteered for a lot of projects like we're writing, um, behind her scalpel, which is going to be a collection of stories for, um, that will be published in dental schools for women interested in oral surgery. Oh, so, neat. yeah, so I'm super excited. So just trying to use my voice to, I guess, better showcase that women can be surgeons and have a life as well. And then it's just making friends and empowering women in other fields too. So whether it's my friends in business or public relations or nursing or dentistry, it's just Mm -hmm. being able to elevate them. So you often see me repost interesting stuff that they've posted you know, I do follow Friday and also I try to do, I haven't done recently Women Crush Wednesday just because of the social atmosphere, but, you know, trying to highlight a few female cases specifically on Wednesday. And when I do my follow Fridays, my rule of thumb is like three to four people. And I try to do at least one to two of those accounts that I um, recommend are always female as well. I love that. I mean, like you can't see me over here, but you know, when I hear women talking (laughs) about like, lifting up other women like I just I get the wiggles and it's right it's so it's it's embarrassing um but like I get wiggly and excited so I'm like yes yes more like-minded people like let's do it there's plenty mm-hmm. of room at the top like that's but like what you're saying is how we get women up there though like there's I think so much I think one of the other thought processes processes whatever that need to change is that, you know, women have had to work so hard to prove themselves in this community that Mm -hmm. I think a lot of women are almost scared that like they'll lose their ranking or that there's Mm -hmm. not enough room because they had to fight so hard. And it's like, just think of what could happen if everyone just like extended their hand and pulled someone up with them. Mm -hmm. Oh, it would make a world of difference. There's so much room. There's plenty of room. <laughs> there are plenty of seats at the table. Like we, we got this. Like we are, we are such a force of good in this world. <laughs> we mm-hmm. need more people. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I attended, you know, I, I try to attend at least one or two specific female conferences each year. Mm-hmm. So last year I went to the Pinnacle Conference, which was put on by Danielle Jones, um, Natalie Crawford, and Pamela Mehta. And it was just an excellent, it was an, an uh, who was the last person? One of the ophthalmologists, I'm totally blanking on her name, but she's amazing too. 
and um, Rupa, Rupa Wong. Sorry, I didn't want to get that wrong. Oh, I've reached out to her. I want to have her on the podcast too. Uh, she's wonderful. But they put on this conference, which was to empower women. It was called the Pinnacle Conference. It was in Dallas in December. And I made so many in real life friends from that experience that I have maintained to this day. We talk to each other on the phone. We text each other. We um, have support groups where we will discuss issues that we're really, you know, frustrated with, or we'll think of, you know, Instagram campaigns to talk about. And it's been such an amazing network of women to say like, wow, I have all of these people to lean on. And so that's great. And then our women in OMFS group has been that for me as well. It's a collection of residents and attendings, both new and more established attendings. And again, we try to do the same thing. Like we did the don't rush video, which was women in OMFS version where we all came together and highlighted how we can be surgeons and do stuff outside of that. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's been so rewarding to engage with other women who are uplifting. I mean, I'm sure you know the Katie Duke. You had her, I think, on your show too. She's and- a, she's one of my dear, sweet friends. I love her very much. She <laughs> is amazing. And I just, I love everything that she stands for. And she's someone who's able to talk about her her past and things that she didn't do well. Mm-hmm. And she's always, you know, she's the one who founded that Empowered Women, uh, Empowered Women, Empower Women, or Empower Others, I think is how she says it. But she is someone that I look up to and and how do I push people the way that she does? And so unfortunately, I think we've all had those experiences, like you said, where other women see you as a threat and Mm -hmm. bring you down. And I've experienced that a lot, especially my career being a female surgeon. It is extremely tough. (laughs) And some of the most negative experiences I have had sadly have been for other, from other women. And so I have just vowed to try to not do that to other women. And it's been, it's been tough because some people don't want to see you succeed because they fear that exactly like you said, that you're taking their place or their spotlight. Mm -hmm. And so it's something that we will as a society always have to like work through, but like you said, I think if we can focus on empowering each other, it just makes the community that much stronger. Oh, you said that beautifully. <laughs> Renya, I'm so thankful for you reaching out to me. So that I found your account and was like, who is this badass chick? Hell yes. <laughs> Thank you, Danielle. It means a lot to me. It's, it's hard because when you're still new on Instagram and trying to mm-hmm. make a name for yourself, like, no one wants to give you the time of day, right? They're like, oh mm-hmm. my God, you don't have enough followers or you're not popular enough. And it's been tough. So I think I thank you for actually giving me a chance to join your platform and be part of your mes- message and show that like, even though you might be a small brand new account, you still have good things to share. So I appreciate the opportunity. Oh, your account's amazing. Like that's that's what the WOMED is. The WOMED is a place for everybody. Like I, I would just want, I want, every voice, every race, everyone to see a piece of themselves here because we we just need that representation in medicine because we, we're empowering the next generations. Absolutely. And I think you're doing a fabulous job. That really means a lot. I'm a little emotional today. <laughs> <laughs> we all are. And I, and, but I wanted to, and I can tell, but I wanted to let you know, like you're doing a great job and just don't worry about those people that don't agree with that, that viewpoint because you're doing it. You're reaching the audience that you want to. You are empowering other women. You're speaking from diversity. So you're not only talking about 
women in different subspecialties of medicine, whether it's nursing or PAs or doctors, um, surgeons, but you're also focusing on bringing different races and different minorities in. And I think that is a wonderful thing to do. So I appreciate you for doing that. I really appreciate that. I'm (laughs) trying. Okay. Composing. (laughs) (laughs) I just love everybody so much. (laughs) Right. That's good. You can only change the world with love. Yes. Where all can people find you? What all platforms are you available on? So I'm on Facebook and LinkedIn, again, with just my full name. So Rania um, Habib. And then on Instagram, it's ranyahabib.md.dds. And right now that is what I'm doing. I have not expanded to like a consistent podcast yet, or I haven't done like Twitter (laughs) (laughs) or TikTok. I'm still I can't to TikTok do- either. I don't know how I to I know. Do it. I'm just trying to decide like if other if I want to be on other platforms like YouTube and things like that. So I would say just find me on Instagram is the best way to interact. And then as I expand, we'll go from there. <laughs> that sounds great. <laughs> well, I will link all of that in our episode notes. You're literally doing so much already. And the fact of having like three more social media platforms to try and be active on top of that, I think you're hitting all of your bases right now. Yeah, I, I'm. A lot of my friends are trying to push me to do TikTok, not from the dancing aspect, but just to be able to mm-hmm. empower the next, um, the younger generation. That's and a very so, good point. Um, I'm thinking about it. I'm just struggling with how do I want to do it effectively? Mm-hmm. Um, because again, I am in a very small subspecialty where people talk and people already give me a hard time for my presence on Instagram. So, um, which is great by the way, like there's, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with your presence on Instagram. Yeah. But you would be surprised at how much, like I get teased by my, by my, like by my colleagues. It's insane. Like every meeting I go to, they'll be like, Oh, are you going to put this? Are you going to post this on the gram? And I'm like, yes, as a matter of fact, I am. And I'm like, why do you not think that showcasing our specialty and growing the specialty is a good thing? Right. I deal, I already deal with that, um, a lot. (laughs) And so the thought of going to another, it has to be a very well calculated move if I'm going to expand to another platform. (laughs) Yes. Trying to decide. (laughs) Well, I think your content is great. I think you are great. You're more than great. You're phenomenal. Thank you, Danielle. I appreciate that. You as well. Well, thank you. I need to have (laughs) I need to have like a WOMED conference or reunion. Maybe that would be great. What's next? And have everyone everyone invited that I've interviewed and then a bunch of other women and we can just all talk we can do some yoga we can have some speakers this is ooh, this is a great idea it's a fabulous idea I think you should definitely think about that okay I'm gonna I'm gonna put my my wheels in motion try and figure that one out (laughs) there you go we have come to the end of our time for today but thank you so much for having me I appreciate it thank you so much for coming on you're an absolute light and I can't, we're going to meet in person. It's just going to happen. Whether it's, you know, cross country skiing or curling, like some winter yes. sport. <laughs> or Nashville so I can come and finally get a really good pair of cowboy boots and listen to some country music, expose myself. <laughs>
but you are welcome here anytime. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate so much for joining me tonight. You're welcome. It was my pleasure. Major, huge thank you to Dr. Rania Habib for taking the time to share her story with me. I love these conversations and I love women supporting women and not just talking about supporting them. Make sure to follow Dr. Habib on Instagram at Rania, that's R-A-N-I-A, Habib, H-A-B-I-B, dot M-D, dot D-D-S. You can also find her on Facebook and LinkedIn. I will leave you beautiful humans with this. Don't be afraid to hold out your hand and bring a colleague up with you. There's plenty of room. With that, WOMED out. Out.